Well, this is Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I'm Jim Grant. Thank you for being with us. And with us, too, as always, is Eric Whitehead to the control panel and the great deputy editor of Grant, Evan Lorenz. And our special guest today is Edward Yardeni, Dr. Yardeni. And Ed's uh, career and my more or less overlap in chronology. I think I'm uh, 20 or 30 years older, but I think we are telling messages <laughs> by the same. You've gotten some, I think you have 40 odd years in grade, Edward. Yes. And, uh, I think we, we've been around. Yes, we have. You you are as prolific as you are prophetic, because I am holding in my lap at this point, I'm in Schoharie, New York, by the way, just to help people keep track. I am in Schoharie, New York, with a book on my lap, and it's Ed's new book. It's called Fed Watching for Fun and Profit. Now, I understand the profit part. Would you kindly explain, Ed, uh, in a few well-chosen words, where the word fun comes from? <laughs> Well, it's very interesting watching the Fed. The Fed is certainly uh, extremely important to yeah. all of us, uh, not just in uh, the investment community, but business and around the that, world. It is uh, ubiquitous, I must say. Everywhere. Ed, Ed started his career after earning a PhD at Yale. He started his career at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. But to his credit, he uh, stuck around there, I think. Uh, what, you're like 20 minutes, Ed? A year, <laughs> a year right? Yeah, about a year. <laughs> and uh, I passed on uh, sitting on the open market desk, which oh. some people like to have on the resume, but I've done all right over the years yes, after a year at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Well, Ed, uh, after the um, Federal Reserve Bank of New York, his next major career event was having lunch with me at, at the Siemens Cafeteria. And, uh, Right, and then, looking uh, Battery Park. Right, Battery Park, right. And then uh, there was your uh, E.F. Hutton and uh, right. a succession of other uh, major Wall Street member firms when they had member firms. And Ed was known as not only a very good um, forecaster, but also one who was a moneymaker. Very important. And uh, since about 2007, I think, Ed, you have uh, been the um, uh, the eponym founder, the guiding spirit, and the chief cook and bottle washer of Yardeni Research. That's the th January 19th, Correct. That's right. Yeah. So, um, Ed, uh, I want to get into uh, the past, the present, and the future, but let's begin with a little bit of the future. Is this a V kind of shape recovery we're looking at? Well, there's an alphabet soup of uh, letters that uh, people have been talking about from Vs, Us, Ws, etc., I think initially it's going to look like a V, but I'm in the swoosh camp. There's a lot of people talking about the Nike swoosh that we kind of V up maybe in the third and fourth quarters with a very strong real GDP. I'm expecting real GDP to drop by 40% during the second quarter, and then I think it'll rebound by 20%, maybe 25% in the third quarter, then 5%. Yeah. So it'll feel like a V for a while, but the aftershocks from the great virus crisis, I think, will uh, tone down the uh, ongoing recovery next year. We had uh, one of our cartoons, uh, front page of grants, was a commencement speaker looking out into the audience of searching eyes of the, uh, the new new graduates and uh, he said to them, uh, ladies and gentlemen, during my life, I have learned one thing. If you are down 50% and up 50%, you have not broken even. <laughs> Absolutely. Percentages are funny that way. <laughs> so so, so these the, the, the resurgence in activity that we are, that you're expecting mm -hmm. the next couple of quarters is not going to be much more than something that will not quite deliver us to where we had been. I think it's going to take us a while. I think maybe by the second half of 2022, we might get back where real GDP was in 2019. So I, I do think it's going to be a bit of a slog. I mean, there, we just can't assume that uh, everything is going to go back to normal. I mean, I, I, I'm a, it sort of appeals to me to be a contrarian and say, you know, uh, within six or 12 months, we'll look back and say, well, that was terrible, but uh, everything's normal again. I kind of doubt that's going to happen. I think it's going to be a while before we get back to, uh, I wouldn't call it normal, but back to where we were in 2019. So Ed, Ed, initially yeah. it could be a B. Evan Lorenz, one of the uh, the great researchers and web scrapers, amongst many other talents, uh, points out that you 
Edward Yardeni, have coined one of your famous ac acronyms. You're a great acronym coiner. <laughs> and that would be uh, Evan. Would you uh, care to weigh Yes, in I, I, I like this one quite a lot. You did MAMU, which is the mother of all melt-ups, which is such a great description right. of how the market only seems to go up in spite of the fact that you're not expecting GDP to return back to 2019 levels until the end of 2022. Well, that's the magic of the Fed. Remember uh, one of the key themes in that's the, the book? That's the fun is, part. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's where fun comes that's in. A, <laughs> that's, that's where the fun comes in, is explaining the uh, apparent disconnect between the market and uh, the economic outlook, and that all has to do with the Fed. Yeah, you know, Jim, it's uh, kind of funny. Uh, in early March, I posted my book on Amazon, and there were a lot of reasons to be depressed uh, uh, along with everybody else in early March, but I was particularly depressed or additionally depressed by having published this book that I figured nobody would be interested in. And then uh, the Fed comes up with uh, uh, March 23rd with uh, uh, QE Forever. Remember the week before, it was just QE4, and then it became QE Forever uh, on March 23rd. Uh, as, and as you recall, they, they also said they were going to support the corporate bond market in, in addition to buying treasuries and mortgage-backed securities forever with no limit, uh, without a, a set date. So I, I think the short answer to, your, to the anomaly between the economy and the uh, melt-up is that all the liquidity that's been poured in. Okay, Evan, will you hold to the microphone, please, so that so the uh, listeners can see this wonderful graph we've had in the, had in the current issue of grants? I'm holding it up now. So could you explain it, Evan, for those who can't see this? This is the graph on the, uh, the story. It runs out over the headline, uh, is it monetary torrent or I think money gusher perhaps was the headline. Oh, yeah. So our um, friends at Variant Perception um, had put together a graph that uh, compared the change in real M1 versus real GDP just to see how much excess liquidity that the Fed was pumping into the economy. Right. And if you look over the last four or five recessions, you'd see liquidity would drop at the start of the recession and it would pick up, you know, six, mm -hmm. 12, 18 months later. The one unique thing about this one is from the start of when the recession happened in February, there's been this hockey stick up of liquidity that the Fed has just kind of injected sure. into the market. It, it's off the charts compared to anything else we've ever seen. Well, I like analogies and, you know, the common analogy that we all talked about was that all these uh, QE1s, 2 and 3s uh, amounted to the Fed taking out its bazooka and firing away uh, at all the, the financial problems. Uh, I don't know that it was a great analogy, but then there was some expectation that if we got into trouble again, uh, uh, load up the helicopters with with money, helicopter money. But they skipped that. They, they didn't even go there. They went to B-52s and loaded them up with cash and carpet bombed the economy with uh, just an enormous amount of cash. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it's more money than the economy could absorb, especially given the lockdowns. Uh, the savings rate went to $6 trillion at an annual rate during April. I mean, people just couldn't spend money. If they were getting a paycheck, they couldn't spend it. And if they were getting government benefits, they couldn't spend it. So there was a tremendous amount of liquidity. And as we know, uh, a lot of it went into the uh, into the stock market. A lot of it apparently got uh, young kids who were bored uh, trading stocks. And here we are with Mamu, the mother of all uh, melt-ups. And uh, going into that's this. my big concern. Yeah. Go ahead. As you've laid out, the Fed is incredibly good at laying out liquidity into the economy. Like it can flood the system with more mm -hmm. cash than it knows what to do sure. with. But it's not necessarily good at fixing solvency issues. You can't make an empty theater full right. of people or an empty cruise ship, you know, full of passengers again. And just to pick right. on one market, high yield spreads today are at 5.85% above treasuries. And almost every projection I'm seeing for defaults are over 10%. So the high yield spreads are basically half of the default rate. Right. What, what, what does it mean for where prices are today? And can the Fed kind of keep this disconnect between financial 
financial markets and the economy going for the next two years until we actually recover back to uh, 2019 um, GDP levels? Well, as you know, financial markets aren't really markets here. They've totally been uh, co-opted, taken over, uh, no assets left behind. NALB is really what this policy is all about. And they did treasuries, they did mortgage-backed securities, they're doing corporate bonds, they're doing the so-called fallen angels that have turned into zombies. They're trying to keep them alive. And indirectly, they certainly caused the melt-up in the stock market because I found out during conference calls with my institutional account in early March that a lot of them desperately wanted to get out of the bond market and into the equity market. It seems kind of odd, right, that as the equity market's taking a dive, they want to buy stocks. But these are people who've been through these things and know that when the stock market's taking a dive like that, it creates great opportunities. And they just didn't see much interest in the, they didn't have much interest in bonds anymore. So they basically set the stage for this extraordinary rebalancing out of bonds into stocks, and that's still going on. Uh, Ed, uh, Jim, sorry. Uh, Jim asked you about the fun part of Fed watching. What about the profit part? Now, with valuation so disconnected from fundamentals, how does one right. profit from being a Fed watcher today? Well, that's uh, that's an important question, and uh, the answer is the Fed's never been more important than it is today. You know, the Fed is a, a government bureaucracy, and uh, many, many years ago, uh, a sociologist by the name of uh, Max Weber came up with this uh, notion that uh, beware of bureaucracies, uh, they're unelected and they just amass more and more power. And their existence owes to this uh, ideology that uh, they are run by experts, and experts know better than the rest of us. And uh, the, the Fed is probably the world's biggest bureaucracy, most powerful bureaucracy of, of all times. And uh, you can't ignore what the Fed's doing. Um, you can't ignore what they want to do. So, for example, just recently we had a, a bit of a sell-off in, the, in this melt-up on concerns that there might be a second wave. And suddenly there, there, there was a, a, a second or third wave coming out of the Fed, and announcing uh, that they were going to start buying corporate bonds uh, outright, and that helped to revive the market rather, rather quickly. So um, when I say for fun and profit, the profit part of it is having a sense of what the Fed's doing and is going to do is can be very profitable if you get it right. I find too many investors and too many pundits act like preachers. They, they kind of judge the, the, the Fed, uh, almost kind of a good or bad, uh, a moralistic approach. My approach is, as an investment strategist is bullish or bearish. What are they doing that might be bullish, might be bearish. And I guess that really ever since um, Greenspan, we've had this uh, notion of a Fed put. And now we've got the biggest Fed put of all times, not only the Fed here for us on, on the equity markets, but they're here for everybody in the, in the bond market as well. Here is an excerpt I want to read to you from a new book. The pessimists uh, countered that uh, the central banks were just kicking the can down the road. My reply has been that might be better than doing nothing. The doomsayers have said that it was all heading toward a widely dreaded endgame in a repeat of 2008 or worse. I've countered with arguments suggesting there might be no end to this game. Close quote. Right. That is, uh, let's see, that's page uh, one and seven. Yeah. So no end to this game? Well, you know, uh, it's just not been a very uh, useful uh, concept for investors. Uh, you know, the, the end wait, game wait, wait, might wait. be... Gold has outperformed stocks and bonds since the year 2000. I'm not going to take anything away from gold. I mean, gold, in my mind, is a price that's extremely highly correlated with the tips yield and inversely correlated with the tips yield. So whatever it is that's driving the tips yield is driving gold. I've actually had some accounts of late ask me why gold hasn't soared a lot more, given that the Fed and the Treasury 
countries have basically embraced modern monetary theory, a subject that you've discussed in the past. Why isn't gold a lot higher? And I think the answer is it still seems to be inversely correlated with the tips yield. So I'm not going to tell you that the pessimists haven't figured out ways to make money. I mean, I've been bullish on bonds and the pessimists have been bullish on bonds. I've been bullish on bonds because I've been a disinflationist for 40 years. But as you probably know, I don't spend a lot of time commenting on gold. It's just not something I take a pro or con uh, position on. I let others who are more knowledgeable about that particular metal. But with regards to the end game, you know, for over 10 years uh, since uh, the 2008 calamity, the bears, the perma bears uh, have uh, predicted that uh, this will all end badly. And that I'm not disputing that it might end badly eventually. And it certainly felt like it a few weeks ago. But then the Fed came in and kept kept it going. Ed, you were among the other great Wall Street phrases you have coined is the uh, that of the bond market vigilantes. I think this dates mm-hmm. about 1986. And the bond market vigilantes right. are people who would not suffer the Fed or the Treasury or, for that matter, Mr. Market to drive yields down below a level at which there was no margin of safety. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the green shoots of inflation poked out of the ground, the bond market vigilantes would turn up in force to sell fixed income securities, thereby driving up real yields and restoring order and discipline uh, to public finances. Uh, explain what happened to the vigilantes. Do they go down to Boca Raton and retire and just play golf and <laughs> stop paying attention? Where are these people? Well, I think they did a fairly good job in the 80s. There were a few periods where the bond yield went up and concerns that uh, we were coming out of a recession uh, with too much inflationary baggage. Um, and so the bond yield went up. And as you recall, uh, even in the 90s, uh, Bill Clinton was advised uh, not to ignore the, the bond vigilantes and uh, that there was a need to do something on, on the fiscal discipline side to satisfy the bond vigilantes. So they had their day in the sun. And then inflation started trending lower. I mean, inflation actually started trending lower in, in the 80s when the bond vigilantes were particularly uh, concerned about inflation. And I think they had something to do with it. But there were other powerful forces like globalization, technological innovation, aging demography, all kinds of structural forces came in and brought inflation down in a structural basis in the 90s and in the 2000s. And as a result of that, bond vigilantes just didn't kind of fell asleep. They didn't feel like a need to be as vigilant. And then, of course, since 2008, they've been buried by the central bankers. The central bankers uh, jumped in and said, you know, there is no bond market anymore. We are the bond market. We're going to determine uh, what where the bond yield is going to be. And that basically uh, co-opted the, the power of the uh, vigilantes. Now, every now and then, when inflation shows up anywhere in the world, I get a call from somebody at one of the media outlets asking me about the bond vigilantes. And I said, the last time I saw them was in Greece in 2010. And maybe they were there trying to get a nice suntan. But uh, the reality is uh, bond yields went up dramatically back then. But we really haven't seen bond vigilantes anywhere because of the central bankers' interventions. Ed, you said people keep asking you when it's going to end. And you say, what if it doesn't end? But heading into this uh, crisis, we were coming off of the longest expansion in U.S. history. But at the same time, corporate debt is a percent of GDP. GDP was at a record high. The number of companies that mm-hmm. were deemed zombie, i.e. couldn't service their um, interest expense from operating income, right. was also at a record high for um, a non-recession. It seems right. like we keep eroding the fundamentals of you know economic strength and dynamism every time mm-hmm. that they intervene. At some point, does it kind of, what the central bank's doing, undermine their own goals and kind of create a crisis? I think that's a very legitimate possibility. Um, and I'm going to be very empirical about it. I'm not going to just blindly go off a cliff and uh, 
and tell you that, uh, you know, we, we're, we can still kick the can down the road. But for now, the latest episode of what the central banks have done is they've extended this thing further. Now, with regards to the debt issue, you, you know what corporate bond yields are yielding now, right? I mean, uh, they're near historical lows. I think on Monday. Yeah, actually, it is, it is a low as of today. Yeah. All right. So there you go. I mean, yeah, so we had a trillion dollars worth of debt raised so far this year, all-time record high for that period of time. And I reckon about half of that was refinancing. So there's just a tremendous windfall here for corporate America in refinancing their debts at record low interest rates. And so, you know, here the Fed was very well aware in its financial stability reports that half of investment-grade corporate bonds were on the verge of turning into junk. And they said, they said, if we fall into recession, they'll fall into junk. And Powell was asked before the virus crisis, uh, what are you doing about it? He said, oh, we're aware of it and we're dealing with it. And um, he never really explained exactly what he was doing. And now we know what he's doing. He's buying all of these bonds. We're dodgy and uh, supporting the market. So... um hasn't ended yet. One of these days it might end, but you know, uh, history shows that you know pessimists often are proven wrong by surprises, particularly on the technology side. We don't have to spend a lot of time on Thomas Malthus, but we all know that you know he was the first economist, and he was the first economist who probably got dead wrong more than any other economist in history. And you spend you spend a few pages in this book, uh, kind of uh, doing a tap dance in your graduate school alma mater, <laughs> Yale, and on one distinguished alumna of that program, uh, Janet Yellen. Would you kindly have you got the guts to say this out loud? Well, I, I want to. <laughs> no, I, no. I, I, that, was, I, I like, that, that, that question yeah. was intended to be annoying. Yeah, you know, I, I like Janet a lot. I think she's very smart. I owe a lot to her. I attended Yale six years after she did, and she had these famous Xerox uh, notes that were called the Yellen notes, uh, basically very, uh, very intelligently explaining what James Tobin was uh, telling us in class. And so I, I think <laughs> I got through Yale thanks to her notes. So I, I owe her a, a, a lot. But I want to put the, uh, student, Janet no? Yellen in the. I want to put Janet Yellen in the context of the Fed chairs that we've had since Volcker. Volcker really was the last true great chair. He was a fiscal conservative. He was a monetary conservative. He felt that you know the Fed had to keep a lid on inflation. He didn't feel like he needed to provide the stock market with a put. He didn't have any obligation that way. But then uh, along comes Greenspan, uh, followed by uh, Bernanke, and then by Yellen. And so there's kind of the three PhDs, and they're, they're macroeconomists. And you know I'm a recovering macroeconomist. I tell people. And macroeconomists are good people. They want to do good, but they're meddlers. And um, I think where the Fed really went wrong and is in the notion that uh, it's the Fed's job to um, manage the business cycle, to uh, moderate the business cycle. Remember Bernanke had that famous speech about the great moderation, taking credit for how the Fed had moderated the business cycle. And four years later, we have the Great Recession. So they didn't do such a good job. But I, I think Yellen was really part of that group, which has really continued under Powell. Powell's not a PhD economist, but he's been around them so, for so long that it's kind of rubbed off on him. And so they have this tremendous need to uh, to manage the business cycle. And by the way, they they claim that they were legally responsible for doing that uh, because of the 1977 Humphrey Hawkins legislation, which legally gave them that dual mandate. But they've they've taken that dual mandate to places that nobody ever imagined that they'd go, and they didn't have to go there. But so be it. Uh, it's it's been done. Um, at one point, uh, I, I read your book that uh, Janet Yellen said that uh, this is her quote. Now I've noticed that Yaleys often have a sharper eye for identifying market failures and greater concern for policies to remedy them than economists from institutions that I shall leave nameless, like quote, close quote. I guess she means by that like Indiana University and places like that. <laughs> yeah, everybody else. Anybody but Yale. Yeah. So, so 
I mean, I went to Yale, and I don't really feel like I got any greater insight into how the world works than anybody else has. Is the financial future predictable? Well, uh, I made made a pretty good living uh, giving it a try, and uh, different. I'm I'm still going at it. I'm still going. I'm still going at it. Uh, You've done a very good job. I'm just. I ask Edward because it's impossible not to draw a certain comparison between the epidemiologist and the economist with respect to the future. And I agree. The ep- epidemiologists, it, it seems like such a more substantial line of work because I, maybe because of the syllables in the in the word, it's a multi-polysyllabic <laughs> word. But when you hear someone just identify it as an epidemiologist, that confers an intellectual status. I think is undeniable. At least the an expert, the, the expert, yeah. But don't uh, economists suffer from collectively uh, from the, uh, the same essential problem, which is that the which is one of uh, complexity. Uh, this I, yeah. I completely agree with you. I've been, you know, um, I've been kind of writing the same notions that epidemiologists are starting to remind me of macroeconomists with their models and simplifying assumptions and you know blinders to uh, yeah. to date to the data. They really start out with their models and then look for data that make, makes a, makes them work. That's why in my old age I've become very, uh, as the Fed uh, used to say, data dependent, very empirical in uh, my attempts to forecast the economy. And so I try not to be too biased about by, uh, by models and by my view of my philosophical view of the world and just try to deal with it objectively, which is kind of the theme of the book yeah. is, uh, you know, don't preach, don't don't judge the Fed, uh, try to figure out where they're going and try to make some money uh, along the way, especially if this does all end badly. But if, if I mean, I, I'm going to, if I may say, uh, of course I may say it, whose darn podcast is this? Okay, I am <laughs> going to put in a word for who was the eminent uh, Supreme Court justice of yesteryear who spoke about the situation, the world in which we live and its law and its structures and its prejudices and, its, uh, and uh, what have you. And it seems to me that one is, is, is a participant in the world of markets, which really are, have been, rather, all about price discovery and right. the freedom of individuals to express views on valuations and levels, prices and risk, perceived risk, margins, safety, what have you, mm-hmm. to express these ideas in the form of prices. That is a, it's a, it's a branch of liberty. And it's, cap- uh, it's capitalism. Right. One doesn't think worse of people in politics for standing up for free speech and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and free elections. And yet, uh, right. is it really true that we ought not to preach when we see uh, the central banks, in effect, outlawing the financial equivalent of free speech, which is price discovery? Yep. What's, what's wrong, no, with, I, I have, what's wrong I, with raising I, a flag and saying this is wrong? Oh, there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just not my day job. Well, speaking <laughs> of your day job, which you've done very well over like four plus decades, you know, when uh, you have been well known, I think gratefully known on the part of the many salesmen that have listened to you and have gone out into the world and tried to make money on, on abstract ideas, you make them less abstract by saying, all right, here's the situation. Let us make a buck. We are in this business not to make judgments, rather to make money. So back to you, Edward. Given that uh, yield spreads, credit spreads are artificially suppressed or suppressed. Given that uh, interest rates themselves are arguably suppressed, given that valuations are uh, inflated, um, how do you make money knowing that inherently there is risk in these situations? Well, I I think at at this point, uh, you you 
kind of have to uh, take the facts on the ground. The facts on the ground, as you said, is uh, the, the Fed, the other central bankers have uh, made owning uh, bonds very uh, uninteresting. And if, in fact, we do find either a V-shaped or some sort of recovery from this occurring fairly soon, um, I think there's a reasonable uh, fear of some that uh, at least be a temporary inflation uh, surge. So why would you want to own bonds in that kind of scenario? Uh, so the, the central bank is kind of forcing investors to rebalance out of bonds and into stocks. And that gets back to the whole uh, mother of all melt-up scenarios. I, I do worry that, uh, you know, this could very well be something like uh, 1999, uh, where we just uh, see a tremendous melt-up. I mean, it's already been tremendous, but uh, further melt-up in the stock market. And, um, you know, I'm not, I, I think it's still uh, an area where you're going to make some money. But uh, in stocks. The, the more you make, the more at some point you may want to just uh, start cashing in. And that may be my advice along the way here. Yeah. I mean, Jeremy Grantham, I guess, was in the tape yesterday talking on CNBC. Yes. And right. uh, he, he said that, that the spectacle of the Robin Hood cohort buying right. Hertz Group or Hertz, whatever it is, yep. common was, and that, that was, that's like it. He said, that, all right, there's the bell. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I read that article, uh, what he was saying, and he said it could be like 1999 all over again and uh, get out now. And there's nothing wrong with that advice whatsoever. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it, it makes sense. But on the other hand, you don't want to fight the Fed. And if the Fed's going to continue to provide all, all this liquidity, the market probably has more upside and uh, then you can get out. And so what, I'm not, what, what's going to cause the next inflation if there is going to be the next inflation? Here we have the Fed's balance yeah. sheet is uh, expanding at annual rate in excess of 700%. M3, the broadest monetary aggregate, is mm -hmm. rising at an annual rate, uh, uh, you know, it's, anyway, it's high, right. uh, unprecedented in peacetime. And the deficit, uh, never mind, we know about that. So one had always thought that uh, too much money chasing too few things, uh, too much debt, blah, 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 monetary excesses, mm -hmm. all these things were inflationary. Both of us grew up in that world. Is inflation dead and decomposing? Is it latent? Yeah, well, we grew up in that world, but it, uh, as you know, I've been a disinflationist uh, for the past 40-plus years, arguing that there were very powerful structural forces bringing inflation down. And I think one of those forces may be at risk here, and that's globalization. Globalization is global competition, and uh, to the extent that uh, maybe what we're seeing here is the development of a Cold War between the United States and China, and that the world becomes uh, less globalized, uh, that could force companies to bring supply chains uh, back to their own borders. And that could lead to higher uh, costs for sure. And then the question is, does it squeeze profits or does it get passed through prices? Consumers, I think, are pretty used to uh, getting very low prices, uh, especially after this virus situation. Over what, 50% of uh, uh, the kind of sales that can be delivered to your uh, front stoop, 50% uh, are now online. And uh, the Internet's been a very powerful disinflationary force. So, no, I'm still, I'm going to overstay my welcome probably, but I think inflation uh, is dead. I don't think it's coming back. And I think the biggest uh, the disinflationary force is actually uh, global demography. Uh, fertility rates all around the world, except for India and Africa, have collapsed below, uh, below replacement. And uh, we're just not having enough babies, and uh, we're all getting older. And I think uh, geriatric d demographic profiles are inherently deflationary, as we can see in Japan. Japan's uh, kind of, it's Japan, not Weimar, uh, Germany. That's kind of my role model for where we go from here. It's uh, not necessarily going to lead to either hyperinflation or even uh, transitory inflation. You know, this business about getting older, is there anything we can do to get out of this? No, I think stuck with it. Just think, just think young. <laughs> well, I am thinking your denny.
many. Uh, I am thinking that the very excellent uh, Fed Watching for Fun and Profit just out. And I, think, I guess you can uh, go on Amazon and get this fine volume, Edward. You can visit uh, Ed's website. And you know, it's, it's been a pleasure talking with one of the, uh, I think if not the leading money-making economist on Wall Street, money-making economist. So Ed, thank you for being Jimmy, with us. Jimmy, we were very kind. Thank you, Evan Lorenz. Thank you, uh, Eric Whitehead. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I neglected to uh, put in a plug for item of listening. And this morning, I, I want to tell, I want to wind up by telling you about the hardship of my self-isolation up here in Schoharie, New York. I drive 15 minutes to and from Middleburg, New York, to pick up a copy of the Wall Street Journal and the Times and the Post and Times Journal of Schoharie County. And I got there this morning, Stewart shop, picked up these papers, paid for them, left, drove back home, got out of the car and noticed that the front page of the Post was precisely the front page of the Post yesterday. And that was indeed yesterday's paper. I got back in the car, drove to Middleburg, New York, came... Uh, yeah. But however, in the toing and the froing, I listened to uh, uh, Mozart's first piano concerto in a minor key, the D minor piano concerto number 20. And I commend to you, ladies and gentlemen, the second movement. Yeah, that's that's available on YouTube. So uh, this will do it for this episode of The Current Deal. So thank you for being with us and talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.